Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hi, this is Bob, 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 v, 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 Vila. And now, it's time for the show, This Old Dungeon. The show where grognards go to get their grog on. Between the two of us, we're going to get a lot of stuff done. We're going to kick some ass. We're going to be awesome. Featuring your hosts. Hi, this is Bill Barsh. I am the managing director of Paysetter Games and Simulations. Somebody here call a carpenter? Hi, this is Edwin. I'm a longtime cast member of Skype of Cthulhu, and I am the 5e editor for Frog God Games. The truth is, I can always find games, though. This is Lou Alu. I could charitably call myself a game designer and game publisher, but definitely a veteran role player of 35 plus years. We work on it the rest of the night, we get it together. We can do this, right? There's no way in hell we can do it. Hello, Dungeoneers! We are here tonight with a special October uh, episode of This Old Dungeon. Uh, not just special because we're going to be talking about one of my faves, the Ghostbusters role-playing game, but special because we have an all-star cast tonight, minus myself. Uh, we have our returning co-hosts, Edwin. Hello, everybody. We have Bill Barsh from Pacesetter Games again. Hey, guys. And uh, you're not going to believe it. You're going to have to uh, rewind your podcast episode and, and, and listen to this again. But uh, I'm going to say it clearly. Uh, we have Bill Slavasek here. Bill, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Bill, uh, I, I just want to say, man, um, you, you cannot underestimate how just jaw-dropping it was when you said uh, in your email uh, that, hey, you know, I know, you know you're trying to find these people involved with the game, but, you know, I, I depending on the time, that you would be willing to uh, stop by our little program and hang out with us for a night. Uh, that just floored me, man. I'm really appreciative of your time here tonight. Hey, no problem. Like I said, uh, happy to help. So uh, I've gotten some uh, questions from some listeners, and I personally had some questions here put together to just kind of start off and talk about, you know, um, who, who you are, your, your your pedigree in gaming, and kind of what you're doing now. So um, why don't we just start with, uh, in a short list, what are some of the projects you've worked on in, in the gaming industry? Well, I've worked for West End Games. I've worked for TSR. Wizards of the Coast, uh, and most recently, uh, Zenimax Online Studios doing computer games. Um, what have I worked on? Jeez. Uh, <laughs> Maybe better go uh, the other direction. What haven't you worked on? <laughs> uh, I worked on the original Star Wars D6 game. Uh, I wrote the Star Wars source book that was the basis for a lot of the expanded universe. Um, I co-designed the tour game with Greg Gordon. Uh, what else? I did Alternity uh, at TSR um, with Rich Baker. Uh, later on, I became the director of R&D for uh, Wizards of the Coast and ran the Dungeons and Dragons creative aspects for 14 years. Helped create Eberron, uh, D20 Modern, D20 Star Wars. Uh, third and fourth edition were under my purview. The list goes on. <laughs> um, oh, and for Lucasfilm, I wrote 
two editions of the Guide to the Star Wars Universe, which is probably one of the better things I'm known for. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to say, as I was kind of, I, I tried to keep things quiet. I didn't, you know, you're doing me such a, a, a honor of, you know, appearing tonight. I didn't want to be like, hey, guess who I got coming up? But some of my close friends that know me, I kind of mentioned to them, and that was their thing. Oh, the Star Wars guy. It's like, yeah, yeah, the Star Wars guy. Uh, you you kind of get, uh, is that probably the, the association that most people outside of the gaming realm uh, tag on to you, do you think? It's certainly one of the things I'm most known for, but I've worked on lots of stuff beyond that. So anyone who's done games in the last 30 years has probably <laughs> been influenced or played something I worked on. For sure, man. And Edwin and, and uh, Bill Barsh, if you guys want to jump in with questions and stuff in between or, or you know, try to expansions on the stuff that I've got here, feel free. I'm just, just kind of going through some things so that uh, some of the things I think our listeners wanted to know will, will kind of get addressed here. So, Bill, you know, a lot of people know about the early days of TSR. I mean, that's a really hot topic right now. There's lots of books being written about it. Um, and a lot of gamers kind of consider that the golden era of role-playing. As West End Games hits the scene and actually starts to go from the wargaming uh, material it was working on into the role-playing material, uh, I, I really feel like we can see a change in role-playing games and the, the DNA of them and how they're played and what the purposes are and, and just a whole lot of different aspects. Uh, and, and that's kind of where you enter on the scene as far as, uh, you know, an editor and writer in the industry. Am I correct in that? Uh, yeah, I joined uh, West End Games just about the time they were transitioning from a board game company that dabbled in role-playing to a role-playing game company that dabbled in board games. <laughs> uh, uh, I actually got there just as Ghostbusters was getting ready to be sent to the printer. Um, one of the first tasks they gave me was to proofread all the galleys coming out of the typesetting machine because that's the way we used to do stuff back in the old days <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah I mean uh, we didn't know it at the time but the way we approached role playing and the creation of source books and adventures I think they did influence the stuff that came in the, in the 90s after us uh, to some greater or lesser degree not only the way TSR went uh, but also uh, places like White Wolf and Vampire, because we started to treat the products uh, not just as games, but as as things you'd want to read cover to cover. Sure. Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say we're gonna get to this, but that was totally something I noticed about Scared Stiffs, uh, which which we're getting to. But uh, the the idea that this is something you could just read cover to cover uh, was was very strong. Yeah. Well, even the material presence of the way uh, the Ghostbuster games and later Star Wars. Uh, the things that were in them, the sort of like the, you know, in Star Wars, you have those ads for joining the uh, the Empire or whatever. Uh, right. uh, just the mentality of it, that this is more than just a, you know, set of game rules or a module, but it's, you know, just steeping you into that, uh, you know, that lore, that, that, that universe or whatever. Yeah, and we were, we we're fans ourselves, and we were just trying to do products that we would like to uh, to have if we were just reading them on our own. So uh, uh, we had no idea that they would last 30 plus years and still be talked about <laughs> in 2021. <laughs> well, it, the way I kind of look at that, I mean, the, the original Star Wars D6, and I, I don't want to hijack this and get off in a, in a crazy direction, but you know, you're dealing with one of the, the most influential cultural IPs in the last 40 years, which is clearly Star Wars. 
And then you combine it with, uh, you know, just a solid game system, which was very innovative. And I know we will have discussions on that with the Ghostbusters RPG and how that act has a really great connection to Star Wars D6, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure, Bill, you'll um, elucidate us on that in a lot more detail. But, um, I mean, what a amazing experience to be able to work on that. And I, I think that's a, a great thing that we'll probably jot in and out of here in this discussion. Yeah, and it's funny at the time, uh, Star Wars was considered a dead license. Uh, yep, <laughs> sure was. Uh, uh, the, the action figures were going away or ending. The comic book line was ending. It was the 10th anniversary, and the only other thing that came out that year was Star Tours at Disney World, uh, Disney Land, Disneyland. I'm not so, the uh, only one that does that. Great. <laughs> yeah. I never know which ones on which coast. Yeah, yeah I mean, one in California was first. They didn't add the. Uh, it didn't go to Disney World till, till they opened up MGM Studios in Florida. That was a little bit later on. Good to know. Um, if, if you got a minute here for this, uh, take us back and give us kind of like when you entered the scene at West End Games, who were the, the like major names that were there? Who, who, who you kind of recognize as being the most influential uh, people in that organization? Um, what kind of work environment was it? How did you guys develop things? Sure. Um, the offices when I joined were in Manhattan, right around the corner from uh, Madison Square Garden. Uh, we could actually see Madison Square Garden from the editor pit where we all, with me and the other editors sat. Um, uh, we, the, we were on the 11th floor. People that were there at the time, Eric Goldberg was kind of the face of the business. Uh, Greg Kostikian was the lead designer and the, the creative head of the of the group. Uh, it wasn't a big team. It might have been like between the editors, writers, developers, and artists, uh, something like 20 of us. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Paul Murphy, uh, one of the best editors, developers I've ever had the pleasure to work with, uh, actually hired me, and I, I trained and worked under him uh, that first couple of years. Jeff Briggs, uh, not only a great musician, he was our Civil War scholar. Uh, Doug Kaufman, who I collaborated with on a number of the board games we did. Um, it was a small but dedicated crew uh, with a wide variety of skills and talents. Uh, a lot of them had come from SPI, which was known for its massive and complex board games uh, from right before that era. Um, those were all the games with the, the cardboard chits. Um, now, now, TSR had had that, and then they kind of let it like bleed out, didn't they, at that point in history? Uh, I don't not, know if they had it yet, but they got not it. Yet. Oh, okay, not yet. That was later yeah, on. Just, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, SPI was just kind of dead in the water at this time. Uh, yeah. Um, but in any event, like I said, they started as a as a board game company, uh, probably best known at the time for Killer Angels and Junta, and they did the first edition of Paranoia, which began to give them a taste of the role-playing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, when I got there, uh, Ghostbusters was just coming out. Uh, they were working on the second edition of Paranoia, uh, which I also got to help with along the way. Can't and, forget Bug-Eyed Monsters. That game was awesome. Oh, Bug-Eyed Monsters. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that was West End. I think it was, right? I thought he did that I know it, company. It was Greg Kostikian, but I don't think it was West End. Huh. I know I they did an SPI version. I thought West End picked it up, too. Maybe not. Uh, maybe, but if they, if they did, it was gone by the time I got there. Uh, what was it? it would be, yeah, it was early. It would have been an early eighties, eighty two, yeah. eighty three, something like that. Uh, yeah, maybe I had the game, but we weren't doing it when I got there. Um, right, 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 right. Um, but in any event, 
the whole process there was uh, the designers uh, would create the product. It would go through a stage of development. Rules and board games got a lot of development. Um, adventures got a little bit of development. And by development, I mean a lot of playtesting, a lot of tweaking of the rules and the mechanics to make sure everything was working the way you wanted it to work. Uh, iteration. Development was kind of iteration. Okay. Uh, and then it would go to an editor uh, who would do the cleanup and make it all uh, good for print. And, uh, and that was kind of our process. And it was um, uh, very collaborative. It went through a lot of hands, which helped make every product better. And uh, that was a, a method of work and a process of work that uh, that I was trained in and that I tried to take to every place that I went after that. Now, if I uh, heard correctly, you, you came into West End Games off of a uh, like a newspaper job, do, editing for newspaper. Uh, yeah, I spent uh, four years in college uh, working in the communications art, working on the the weekly uh, uh, college paper. From there, I got a job on uh, a weekly in Queens, um, and I did that for just about a year. Uh, it turns out that when you get to the end of the year and start the next one at a local newspaper, you kind of start doing the same stories again. <laughs> uh, so I said, ah, no, time to look for something else. And I answered a blind ad in the New York Times for a game editor. I had no idea what it was for, but I figured, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I'm a gamer. Let's see what this is. And it turned out to be uh, West End Games, who I'd actually not heard of at that point, uh, although I did know TSR um, and played D&D. Um, uh, but I quickly figured out what they did, and they liked what I showed them, and we got along smashingly. <laughs> Just on a tangent here, uh, we're talking about offices that overlook uh, Madison Square. We're talking about ads in the uh, New York Times. Um I mean, surely they had something bigger than games going on that allowed them to, to be where they were and, and have that, you know, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine what the rent on an office space like, you know, in that location would have been. Uh, Scott Palter, who owned West End Games, uh, also his him and his family also owned a shoe import business uh, called Bucci Imports. Uh, they brought Italian shoes into America uh, and that. Uh, business made them lots of money. Uh, the game stuff was his hobby, and he supported it. Uh, he wanted it to make money, obviously, but he supported it with the with the shoe company. Later on, he moved us to Honesdale, Pennsylvania, where he could combine his Long Island shoe business with his Manhattan game company into a single location in an area that was uh, much more affordable. Uh, Honesdale is kind of in the middle of nowhere in, in Northern Pennsylvania, wow. near Scranton. So were you guys always working next to like a warehouse full of shoes and stuff like that? Uh, only when we got to Honesdale. When we yeah. were in Manhattan, we were all on our own and, and rarely saw Scott. He was not around until uh, until we were all under the one roof. So um, how did you slide from the editing job into doing a lot of the design and a lot of the uh, adventure writing and, and, and book writing there at West End? Uh, it was a natural move for me. I, I did a lot of writing uh, as a journalist. Um, I did a lot of writing on my own as both for fun and also for my gaming groups. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do more than just the editing. Uh, so every opportunity that came up, I would do some writing. I, I wrote the rule book for Kings and Things. 
uh, when I worked on that project. Uh, I did some small pieces for uh, some Paranoia products, Hill Sector Blues, <laughs> uh, uh, and a little bit of Orc Busters that Ken Ralston wrote. Um, uh, and then the Scared Stiff projects came along, and uh, we got the manuscript from John M. Ford, who is best known probably for his Star Trek novels, and uh, uh, he wrote a book about a dragons at that point. Uh, so he was a pretty big fantasy science fiction novelist. Uh, he'd also written um, Yellow, and uh, I'm not going to remember the name of it. Uh, Yellow Clearance Black Box Blues. And I only know that, it because it's my favorite of the Paranoia uh, that, adventures. That's the one. Um, it, that, it won an award. Yeah, That yeah. was a great module. It won an Origins Award, I think, right? Yeah. That it did. Uh, so, so he had that pedigree. Uh but what I got from him for Ghostbusters was a short story. Uh, it wasn't in format. It wasn't an adventure. It was a very good short story, but I couldn't just publish it the way it was. So I went to Paul and Greg and said, what do you want me to do with this? This doesn't fit the, the format. Uh, and they said, well, turn it into a full <laughs> adventure, uh, and we'll let you share the cover credit. And I said, okay. And uh, that's how I began to design as well as edit you know a lot of people that uh, get into the the side of the hobby where they're writing professionally uh hear them talk about well you know that kind of kills your gaming life because now anytime you're gaming it's it's play testing something you read it's uh, or wrote it's uh you know working <laughs> uh did that happen for you do you still game did you still game back then oh yeah i'm, I'm a gamer through and through and <laughs> gaming is one of my uh uh favorite pastimes, whether it's video games, board games, or role-playing games. Um, you know, I've been doing it since I was 11 years old, playing in my friend Curtis's basement when we played Monopoly and Risk and the old American Heritage board games from Milton Bradley, like Dogfight and Battlecry. Um, later, we found Cosmic Encounter, and, uh, and then, of course, D&D when it came out. Um, and I was always the guy that read the rules. I was I became the, the dungeon master. And you know, so so yeah, it's work, but work does a different part of the brain than when I'm just playing. Um, and usually when I play, I'm also the DM. So I'm I'm kind of doing the same stuff all the time, but I enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> I think it's very I think it's rare and great when you can actually take your hobby and make a living out of it. Amen. Wow. Uh. You know, at my original gaming group, once I became a professional, uh, I jokingly tried to get them to pay me for my DM services, and they <laughs> laughed at me. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> Got to have somebody to keep us humble. They certainly did that. <laughs> uh, but we still play today, and even with this pandemic, uh, playing online with even the people that we'd normally play with live and in person has been a saving grace. So, uh, so we, we play two or three times a week, something. So that's, that's, that's just part of my social, uh, entertainment. That's awesome. Like I say, I've talked to a lot of people and, and, you know, I've always been a little bit disappointed and say, yeah, I don't really role play anymore. I don't really have time for it. Occasionally maybe a board game or, but, uh, that's awesome. Now you gotta have time for work and play. Uh, otherwise, there's there's a problem. 
I had a question for you, if I can throw one in here. It has apropos of nothing except gaming. Um, I'm wondering, I feel like we, we have a lot of understanding of how role-playing games have informed video games, but I'm wondering what you might have brought back into uh, tabletop games from your work in the video game world, if anything. Well, so I really began working on uh, the video game stuff uh, mostly after I kind of moved out of the tabletop industry. Uh, so I haven't really okay. brought anything back since I've been professionally working in the video games. Uh, but or even back to your to your table, yeah. Yeah, but I I, I look at everything. Uh, everything is inspiration for something. So you know, I'll take something a mechanic I liked in a in a video game or uh, uh, a way they told the story or a way they presented uh, a scene, and I'll say, how can we use that in the tabletop? Um, and some of that was, you know, we, we used a little bit of that influence when we were working on 4th edition uh, Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, we mm -hmm. took some learnings from uh, some of the video games we were playing at the time. Um, uh, but you take inspiration and, and ideas from, from everywhere, and then you modify it and turn it into something you can actually use. Uh, I think that's just... That's certainly the way I... Right, not Nothing specific from, from video games, but just sort of a general life habit. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always something you'll find. I can't think of a specific at the moment, but... Uh, sure. Uh, but there's always inspiration. And even now, I'll, I'll be playing uh, Ghost of Tsushima, and I'll say, oh, that's a neat way they're telling a story. Is there, is there something I can do with that in my current role uh, at On Elder Scrolls Online? You know... Uh, not copying, but you know, can I take that same idea? Get that feeling that I got doing yeah. this, and yeah. yeah, or movies or books. You know, every place uh, you're always looking for inspiration, or at least that's the way I work. Yeah, yeah. Is there when you when you were designing role playing games, uh, or even into the the computer work and designing quests and things for those? Is there a, a typical starting point for you? Uh, me and Bill Barsh, we talked on the last uh, episode that we were on together about how a lot of times the map is what inspires us. We, we look at a map or make a map and then kind of build from that to an adventure. Uh, is, is there a, a jump-off point you normally uh, begin with? Uh, I think it's different for every project. Uh, sometimes an adventure will begin with a map, specifically if it's a, a, a dungeon crawl. Um, a lot of times it will begin with uh, an idea for the theme or the uh, or a scene I have in mind that I really want to build toward. Um, uh, if it's a set of game rules, it's uh, an idea of uh, of a mechanic that I want to build the whole game system around. I, I really believe in in the core mechanic idea hmm. uh, as opposed to different mechanics to do different things. Um, you know, like the original first edition was a lovable Frankenstein monster, but every time it needed to do a rule, they added a body part. Yeah, a lot of subsets, uh, a lot of, yeah. So uh, many games in there. Like you get your money's worth, you know, it's 20 games for the price of one. Sure. Well, most of the games I've worked on, we've had a core mechanic, whether it was Torg or the D6 system or uh, Alternity, uh, the D20 system, you know, build around a core mechanic so that uh, the rules are more... Uh, intuitive and quick to grok. 
I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I love AD&D, but uh, I, uh, I definitely enjoy the elegance of a system that's sort of self-consistent. Uh, the, the other thing I like to do is what's the story of the particular project I'm currently working on? Uh, and, and what can I do to make that story come alive, right? Even even a game that's just mechanics has a story that you're trying to tell, or you at least have to add one at some point. But I like to start with the story and build the game and the rules around telling that story, um, whether it's an adventure or the full a full-on uh, board game or or a role-playing game. You know, throughout your your tour of duty here in the industry, uh, were there any uh, any favorite people that you collaborated with? Um, and if so, you know, what was special about the collaboration, or, or what you know, do you remember most about it? Well, I've worked with a lot, a lot of people, <laughs> and uh, you know, I can't think of anybody who wasn't dedicated, talented, totally professional. Um, I've had a lot of luck in that regard. Um, uh, let me think. Certainly, uh, if we go back to the to the West End days, uh, I learned a lot from Greg Sticky, and I didn't work with him one on one very much. But he uh, he reviewed the, my early work there and gave me lots and lots of feedback. Uh, and and certainly uh, uh, showed me what a really good designer was capable of doing um, and how to get that design to be what you wanted it to be. Uh, Paul Murphy taught me a ton about editing role-playing uh, and board game products. Um, later, uh, also at West End, uh, I collaborated very heavily with Greg Gordon on the tour game, uh, one of the highlights of my uh, career. Uh, working on that with him um, and that was an interesting process because Greg was all about the rules and I was all about the world and the story uh, but we also collaborated on both so it was very uh, kind of makes a good marriage right that, that, yeah. you know, having both ends covered uh, you know later on at TSR I did a lot of work with uh, Richard Rich Baker on, on, on Alternity and on some of the Dark Sun products I worked with Lester Smith on uh, a bunch of little board games there, including Dragon Dice. At Wizards of the Coast, uh, some of my best memories are working alongside Chris Perkins, Jeff Grubb, Kim Mohan. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you can look at any of those books, pick a name. I I either worked with them or supervised them in some manner. <laughs> wow, that's that's fantastic. Uh, some of the games you've named, I mean. They're not like, they're not, they, they're not games that people think of instantly when they think of role playing. But a lot of them are games that now, you know, twenty five to thirty years later, have really, really dedicated fan bases like like Torg and Alternity. Man, there there are people that will go to their grave that you know that is the best role playing game ever made. Uh, any magic in the sauce there? What what's made those games stick with people so well? Do you think? Well, for me, I mean, for, for Torg, it was the combination of the game mechanic, the, the whole idea of the possibilities and the exploding uh, D20. Uh, I, I just found that uh, to be a really uh, fun and satisfying game mechanic. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then you add to that uh, what I think was a really compelling, if not complex, storyline with the different uh, genres uh, converging on our world uh, to attack it. Uh, so you could play horror characters next to science fiction characters next to uh, medieval fantasy characters, and it all worked. Uh, it was a high concept that we had no idea we were going to pull off, and we did. So very proud of that. Uh, Alternative, on the other hand, was we had second edition at the time, and Alternative was my effort to do a science fiction version uh, of the D&D experience, but with a more unified game mechanic. <laughs> Again, going back to my roots there, and uh, uh, it had an interesting dice mechanic with where low rolls were good. Uh, uh, not sure that was for everybody, but it was it was unique for for that system, and, and I enjoyed designing that with Rich. Uh, actually, Lester Smith started as my co-designer on that, but then he left the company. Uh, to go do his own stuff. Uh, so Rich Baker took over at that spot and helped me uh, put those final books together. Um, uh, yeah, and Alternity is another one of those. Uh, uh, like D&D, it was meant to have settings attached to it so you could play anything uh, science fiction-y you wanted to with, this, with the rule set. And, um, and I think that the two settings that we did, um, Dark Matter, probably the most uh, memorable of the two. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that people, uh, you know, people that found them really got into them and enjoyed them. Uh, and, and, you know, it's great to see them still going strong. Ulysses Spiel brought out a new edition of Torg a couple of years ago without any help from me whatsoever, which was perfectly great. And uh, it's nice to see that that's, uh, that line is new and thriving and available again. Uh, and uh, Sasquatch Games did a new version of Alternity as well. Uh, again, without much effort from me. So all my old children are coming back to life. <laughs> well, Alternity is, you know, it's, it's kind of sick. It, was, it, it really is a gem of one of the of some of the products that TSR put in that out in that particular area. And it just got, you know, a lot of people have overlooked it. But, um, you know, whenever someone talks about it, it's always glowing because it was just so well designed and put together. And I'm not just saying that. Because here I am talking to, to Bill S., um, but uh, it really was one of those, you know, TSR had some misses in that era, right? So Alternative was definitely not one of them. They might have missed with the marketing a little bit, but um, as far as the game system and what it did, it, it just did it beautifully. It, it, and it holds up today. So I'm, I'm not surprised it's still, it's still alive and kicking. And, and you know, Alternative, uh, it actually did pretty well during the time. Yes. Uh, the reason we got rid of it is they that we moved over to Wizards, and it was time to do third edition, mm -hmm. and they didn't want anything to compete with sure. third edition. Uh, but a lot of what we developed for Alternity, at least the 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 methods and the general philosophy, kind of found some of that found its way into third edition. Hmm. Yeah, I can kind of see the DNA there. Would uh, were there any you know we were talking about just the slew of things that that made it out there into the industry and in to the public? Were there any projects you worked on that you really enjoyed that just never got to the shelf? You know, I've been pretty fortunate that most of what I've worked on has eventually seen the light of day, but not everything. Uh, uh, back in the 
day as West End was starting to give up on the board games, uh, a couple of the things that I had worked on either uh, as a co-designer or as a developer were let, left to the wayside and not published. Uh, we did an Amber board game that never made it uh, based on the Zelazny novels. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we had a game called Extreme Paranoia, which I really <laughs> wish had come out. Uh, I still have a prototype copy of that that I can uh, play. Uh, lucky dog. Oh, man. It, it had the famous Nothing Happens card deck. You, know? <laughs> you had to draw a card to see what nothing happened, and uh, it usually was very bad. Um, uh, that was a fun game to put together, and, and that was really close to publication. We had done the uh, the board was designed, the, the, the plastic figures were made, and then they decided that they couldn't afford to do board games anymore. Also, I worked, one of my freelance projects from Mayfair was a game called Cyber Chill. Uh, and before I finished it, they canceled the cyber, the, the Chill line, so that never saw the light of day. And that would have been the, the second edition of Chill? Like the yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the black hardcover. Yeah. Um, with the, the soft cover, yeah. It was a hardcover with a softcover. That was weird. Uh, uh, oh, and I guess the other thing that I wish we had done, um, uh, Scott Palter, when we were out at Honesdale with West End Games, uh, had me negotiating with Stephen King to do a Stephen King role-playing game based on his books. Uh, but then Scott, it, the, the shoe company started going bad, and uh, he decided to want to spend the money, so we never got around to doing that but we were pretty close to striking a deal with Stephen King I don't know if there's any measure of this but uh, I mean I, I would have to you know be willing to put down a lot of money that uh, West End Games had the, the largest amount of games produced under an IP property of any other role playing company I mean even TSR I think uh, doesn't hold a candle to the number of properties that you know, Wedge was dealing with. Think that's true? Uh, they certainly had a bunch. I mean, uh, we had Star Trek, Ghostbusters, Star Wars when I was there. Uh, later they added um, and Indiana Jones and Tank Indiana Girl Jones. and Men in yep. Black and. Uh... Yeah, he was. After I left, uh, they went after a lot of the. Uh, I call them low-hanging fruit licenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could get them relatively cheaply. Uh, and produce uh, games quickly with them. Um, and they did some, some nice stuff with that. But that was, uh, uh, they got a bunch of them because that was the, the route they decided to go back at the near the end of the, the company's life cycle. Do you think, and I know this might just be spitballing here, but do you think that had to do with how successful the Star Wars game was and trying to recapture that lightning in the bottle? Uh, I, I was no longer on the inside at that point. Uh, that's probably what Scott was trying to do. Uh, certainly Ghostbusters and Star Wars uh, had been very, very successful for them uh, prior to that. You know, when you try to launch something new, you get one foot in the door if it's something that people already have some familiarity with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, the West game, West, I mean, Weston, I think that was their, right, that was that was their stick after, you know, into, into the, mostly the role-playing uh angle was was grab an IP that had that um, every man familiarity to it right it wasn't just you know small gaming universe everyone knows Ghostbusters everyone knows Star Trek everyone knows Star Wars 
um, it was not a bad business model. And, you know, I think they were, they, it's hard to think of anyone who did more than they did, but I, I can, in my opinion, I guess, just looking at it over these last, all this time, I don't think anyone was ever as successful as West End was. TSR certainly wasn't. They, they did not handle, um, speculative IP nearly as well, or it just never came off. I mean, your Indiana Jones role-playing game, um, just it, Man, it didn't go. You know, it was, it's honestly to this day considered, um, and this is no knock on the people who worked on it, because um, I've certainly worked on duds in my lifetime, but uh, it just never it never worked, right? Um, they did very minimalist stuff with Conan, uh, and that never worked. So it was interesting how West End really, and it's credit to guys like Bill, obviously, who uh, knew how to take an IP and make it a, a successful product or a product that would be received. Um, By its fans and yeah. Yep. Yep. Because, it, it, like I said, it's, it's hard to think of a – in a lot of people, it's hard to even think of West End Games for me and a lot of older people as a role-playing game company because that wasn't our original experience with West End. It was war games, so, but uh, they they really were, you know, taking a, a hindsight look at it, um, incredibly successful in my opinion with their IP. So, kind of going along those lines, and, and listeners keep in mind that I'm this is a lot of me just uh, throwing out hyperbole here, but uh, you know, at the time that Weston Games did the Star Wars license, I mean, Star Wars was really sort of sitting there in the dumpster. I mean, it had. It had become so popular and so big, and so um, you know, so many things had done parodies of it that it kind of burned out quick. And uh, as a kid, at that point in uh, in time, I remember thinking, "Nah, I don't, you know, I don't have anything to do with Star Wars, man. That's, you know, that was you know five years ago or whatever." Uh, but Weston Games picked it up, and and uh, you know, you're probably going to be a bit humble about this, but uh, you know. Uh, Bill, I know you really took it and made it kind of what it was as far as an expanded universe, or at least we're one of the first people to start doing that, to start saying, oh, well, you know, that guy's not a walrus, man. That guy is, you know, uh, oh, man, my head just went dead with the, the name of that alien. But, uh, you know, start naming the aliens, start talking about, you know, why they were there in the bar scene and what's going on with all this tech and, you know, making it so that it was cohesive and in that, you know, there's something beyond the... Uh, the studio back wall to this universe. Um, and yet, I got a lot of friends that aren't gamers but are huge Star Wars fans. I mean, like, the kind of people that have movie props that they've purchased from auctions and stuff like this. And they have no knowledge whatsoever of the West End uh, game RPG of Star Wars, nor the work that you and others did for it uh, that really kind of paved the way for all the, the newer fandom and, and expanded universe do you have any ideas why why that is? Why it seems that that's kind of like the the hidden truth of the Star Wars universe that it kind of came from there, or, or part of it did anyhow? Yeah, I mean, so I think that the D six Star Wars rulebook uh, won won all kinds of awards, um, was very influential in its own right, uh, but if we had not done the source books that followed the line would not have had the impact that it did, that it wound up having because we did get to add those things that you're talking about. Uh, you know, when I was working on the Star Wars source book, 
I would have meetings with the Lucasfilm people, and they were like, well, you can't do anything that's not in the movies. And I said, well, there's not enough there. Let me explain how a role-playing game works and what <laughs> the players and the DM needs, and I won't do anything that you don't get to say yes to, but I got to go beyond the two walls that were built for the set, right? Mm-hmm. It needs it needs the whole planet or the whole solar system or the whole galaxy. Um, and they slowly began to come around to that. Um, you know, and then I had to take things like, I can't call this guy Hammerhead. That's an insult. <laughs> um, let me name him Ithorian. It sounds better. It's it, it it's good for the in the world, and I'll give them a story and a background. And they said, Oh, well, yeah, okay, go ahead, do that. And um, and you know, I didn't I didn't know we were laying the foundation for the expanded universe. That wasn't our intention. Uh, our intention was just to make good products based on a movie property that we loved um and i'm just glad it worked (laughs) uh but why people don't know about it i mean it's only very recently that that role-playing has become uh widely known and accepted and that's because of the internet and streamers and uh and people who grew up playing the games who are now making movies and television uh but back in 86, 87, 88, uh, you know, we did pretty well by selling 75,000 copies of the Star Wars source book, but that's a drop in the bucket, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's not that's not the millions that the, the, the D&D is selling today, right? That's uh, So while we were very influential among the people uh, who picked it up and the industry and all that kind of stuff, uh, and then all of those things were used to create the, the novels that came later, uh, you know, Lucasfilm used to give them a box of our product and say, here, author, you don't have to make this stuff up. We've already got it. Um, so you can still see the influence of, of our products to this day. You know, uh, uh, they'll talk about Ithorians and Twi'leks and Rodians, and they'll mention Ryloth the planet, <laughs> and uh, Finn will say Medpack twice in the new movies. Um <laughs> Uh, and, and you know, Rebels was basically the Star Wars role-playing game turned into a TV show. Uh, yeah. uh, so, so all of that influence is still there and is still being used. And, and you know, sometimes you know, I, I wrote my memoir a couple of years ago about how we created that stuff, just to get the story out there and to preserve it in some fashion. Uh, before I forgot how we did it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know. I'm just tickled pink when I when I see some of that stuff still appear uh, either on the Mandalorian or the Rebels uh, show or something like that. One thing I've always wondered, and I don't know if you'd have insight to this or not, but uh, in the Mose Eisley source book, uh, there's this anthropomorphic rabbit that is selling uh, speeders, and his name is Mace Windu. And I always wondered, and surely it can't be coincidence that that name later on becomes a, a name used in the uh, prequels. Do you have any idea between uh, how it went from one to the other? I do not. Most Eisley was done after I had left okay. the company. And uh, I wasn't even aware that there was a rabbit named Mace Windu. <laughs> uh, interesting. But yeah. anything we did was owned by Lucasfilm, so it was fair game. <laughs>
Um, and, and you've been involved in several iterations of Star Wars as a role-playing game, uh, as you went over to TSR and then Wizards. Um, you know, all of them, you know, are great games, and, and even the Fantasy Flight game that came out later, I, I don't know that you have any association with it, but it's it's also a, a very solid game for, you know, portraying that universe. Do you have a favorite? If, if you were to run Star Wars for your gaming group, is there one that you're like, yeah, that's the one that captures it for me? Um I have fond memories of both the D6 game and the, the D20 game. Uh, I did not have anything to do with the Fantasy Flight game. Uh, I have read it. I've never played it. Um, I have run D20 Star Wars uh, in recent years for, for people. Uh, I have also run D6 Star Wars uh, in recent years for people. Although D6, uh, I, I guess... D6 was a special time because nobody else was doing anything. We were the only Star Wars game in town, and I mean that both as a game and just in general. Um, and, and we got to do a lot of stuff because we were the first ones doing it. Uh, the experience on the D20 version later was very different uh, because we didn't really have to define all that stuff again. It had already been done. Um, uh, the DK books that were coming out most recently at that point were doing it better because they had more art, uh, they were bigger, uh, but they certainly were versions of our source books just amped up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so the D20 game was a very different animal. It was uh, it was more just making a game and, and filling in what you needed for the game as opposed to uh, creating the universe from whole cloth, which was more the experience that when I worked on the D6 game. Uh, so from that point of view, the D6 will always have a special uh, place in my heart. But I still I have a lot of fond memories. I, I think the D20 version was very, uh, very good for its time. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we also got to do the miniatures at that point, which was a great uh, addition uh, to the universe, the, 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 the D20 Star Wars miniatures. Um, uh, but the D6 will always be special because it was the first one, and it and it broke all the ground and created all of the material that's still being uh, utilized as as the background of the world today. Uh, so that's going to always have the special place. Um, yeah. Uh, the D the D6 too. I mean, they just put an anniversary edition out. What last year, the year before, was it? I mean, sold like it, wildfire. I mean, everyone wanted to get their hands on that. I mean. It, just shows you the longevity and how popular that system really was, and, and especially those books. Yeah, Fantasy Flight actually published that. Which yeah, was, Fantasy was Flight great, was yep. great of them. Uh, they did it for the 30th anniversary, um, and yeah, I thought that was uh, a really uh, great thing to do, and and got to show people uh, where it all came from. Oh yeah. So uh, I know I know we uh, we're kind of burning through the time here. I, I got just a couple of questions. I, I promised people that I'd get asked here. Uh, so, uh, one of the things is, uh, you know, the nature of our podcast is to look at games that, uh, you know, come from the yesteryears and, and talk about, you know, what we'd do with them going forward. Um, are there any games in, in your experience or, or sitting on the shelves uh, where, where you game that you just, you're, you're in love with, that you really think are, are excellent, either old games or old adventures that uh, you think are kind of... Uh, you know, uh, uh, unknown or, or lesser known today that really deserve a, a second look by by newer gamers wanting to kind of re-explore some of the old material. 
Uh, I don't know how unknown it is, but my favorite adventure of all time was the I-6 Ravenloft oh, yeah. uh, by uh, Tracy and Laura Hickman. Uh, I've run that adventure more times over the years, and not just as a D&D adventure. I've run it as uh, a Torg adventure. I've run it as a Star Wars adventure. <laughs> uh, it, I just That was the first adventure... Uh, the TSR did that really uh, began to tell a story with yeah. their adventure. Um, and it's amazing because that, that original one is only 32 pages long. And it's it, there's more in there that's not in there that you would ever remember when you go look at it again. That a lot of it is just implied. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but it still tells a great story. And um, that's certainly been an inspiration uh, to me and the type of adventures I've written later. Uh, like I said, I, I like, I like story first story uh, to me. Story is the king and uh, uh, everything we try to do is, is to tell good stories. Um, uh, something else. What would I pick? Um, probably a old board game that I pull out and, uh, every once in a while uh not sure you can even find it anymore uh old game called wabbit wampage you know their version of the looney tunes bugs bunny versus uh uh daffy duck and elmer fudd uh and we had lots of fun with that it's a great game <laughs> that's actually the game i wrote they wanted me to write a review of a game when I got the job at West End uh, as part of the test and I wrote a review of Wabbit Wampage and they must have liked it because they gave me the job. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're ever uh, so inclined, search out the uh, there's a second game, uh, Wabbit Will Venge. Uh -huh. um, it takes place right after it. So, Yeah, I think I have that too. Down in yeah. my, it's, my it's, it's, it's definitely not as iconic as, as the original. As, Wampage, but um, it's still cool nonetheless. Yep. All right, and then uh, we'll finish the, the interview portion of the show here. So you're currently working on Elder Scrolls. I've heard uh, there's a lot of big names that have kind of, from the industry, they are now kind of got their hands in there one way or another. Uh, I mean, who all do you get to work with? And what I know you can't tell us, you know, stuff that's under your, your C&D orders and that sort of thing, but... Uh, what sort of things do you get to work on there? You know, what's your step in the process? Sure. Um, I was hired into um, at Zenimax Online Studios as a writer, um, and I've worked on the Elder Scrolls Online game since it's launched. Um, uh, it, today, I'm the lead writer for the game, uh, and I help craft uh, the stories that we tell. Uh, I, I uh, oversee the writing team, and then I help the designers make the best stories they can make uh, with the with the tools that we have and the, and the the game that we have. Uh, Elder Scrolls Online is an MMO, uh, but we have a very single player mentality. So, if you're a single player Elder Scrolls gamer, you can come in and play our game all by yourself, and and have a great time. Our stories are very deep. Our content uh, and lore. Uh, it is much more like a single player game than it is like an MMO. Uh, 
So, so uh, I'm very proud of the work we've been doing on that. Uh, when I first got there, Lauren Schick, an old old time TSR guy, uh, was was with the company as our lore master. Um, he has since gone to a new, another company. Uh, he wanted to take his family and move to Ireland, so that they they went off to Ireland. Um, but Zeb Cook is there, uh, writer of the uh, a lot of the original uh, first and second edition. Uh, D&D products. Uh, Ed Stark, uh, who actually replaced me at West End Games uh, and then came to TSR and WOTC. Uh, he's one of our zone leads. And Rich Baker, one of my old writing partners <laughs> at uh, TSR and WOTC, is now uh, one of my senior writers here at uh, Elder Scrolls Online. Um, and then, of course, we have a ton of uh, wonderful designers, uh, other writers, world builders, artists, animators, producers, you know, it, it takes a village to create a computer game. And, and we've got a great, we got a great team um, and names you would know from other games. Like um, we got a, we got a ton of people and, and they're all great. Uh, what I work on, like I said, I'm the lead writer and, uh, uh, and we do four releases a year. So we're constantly creating new material uh, and, and lots of uh, content. So it's not a game where you're going to run out of stuff to do. Sounds great. Uh, I, I can never imagine all the all the steps it takes to make such a complex product as a as an online game like that, an MMO that uh, you know all the things that have to fall in place and fall in place correctly to to give people that experience. It's uh, it must be an interesting ballet. It's it's it is very it's it's got similarities to what I did at tabletop, but it's also got a lot of differences and um, uh, the, the amazing thing is that we actually do uh, turn out, uh, like I said, four releases a year, uh, lots of new content, um, lots of new good content. And uh, we did the last two years totally from work from home and never missed a deadline. So that, that was really uh, an amazing feat, I think on our, on our part. Yeah, for sure. Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. Real quest. Um, so we normally do a, a segment where we talk about our, our holy grails, the things we're looking for in gaming. going to kind of fast forward a bit on it and, and just kind of give it in brevity. Uh, is there anything anyone's looking for out there uh, in gaming? Something, you know, some product you're looking for or something you're trying to develop within your game or within something you're writing for a game? Um, I have recently been on a kick. So I've been uh, really excited about Necronomicon, which is a horror gaming uh, convention in Rhode Island every other year, although we taking an extra year off. Um, but I promised them uh, at the last show that I would try to bring some uh, French language gaming to Necronomicon, uh, basically to see if I can get a bunch of folks from Quebec to come down and run games and play games. And so I've been uh, trying to meet and find uh, French gamers. And I just had some of my first um, my first French language games uh, over the past couple weeks, which has been a huge challenge. I have some friends that play uh, that are non-native non English speakers that I play with. Uh, in English, and I 
had not really given them the credit that they deserve. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I got to see if my high school teacher's any good here. Uh, je parle français, et win. <laughs> Excellent. Oui, c'est ça. <laughs> so, are you are you um, fluent in French then? I'm working so hard on it. Uh, no, I'm not. Um, but one of the things that I I uh, I, lo I love about tabletop gaming and all its various forms is just how big our our subject areas are. You know, how how much vocabulary and how many topics we end up talking about. Um, so you might recognize this one, uh, some of you old school folks. I, the game I'm playing in is uh, L'Enfer de Pierre, which is uh, Stonehell. Hmm. Yeah, Peter the Rock, yeah, okay. A uh, little, little Stonehell going on, which I have, not, uh, I have not toured that dungeon in a long time, so it's kind of fun to be back at it. But that's my current, my current quest. How about either of the Bills? Either of you guys looking for anything out there in gaming? I, I'll let the other Bill talk. He hasn't done any talking yet. <laughs> okay. So I just got – I collect old Gen Con programs. I have, like, all but six. Um, so at Game Hole, they had an auction. Of course, I picked one of them up, but, of course, the one I picked up I already had. So <laughs> I think it was from Gen Con 11. <laughs> but it is a way nicer copy than the one I do have. So um, – but anyway, that's uh, that's still my. I don't have like the first five, and then I think like oddly enough from like Gen Con, I, don't know, I think it's eighteen or something like that. And I've been to most of them except like the first ten. So that's that's my grow. All right. And you better get cracking. <laughs> yeah, it it used to be easier than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> How about the other bill? You, you know, I've been doing this so long. I have so much in my <laughs> collection that I really don't need to find anything because uh, I usually already have it. Um, right now, we're trying to figure out how to get rid of some of it to make room for, for the new board games that I want to try. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so at, at the point that you've made a profession out of this, uh, at that point, does does your wife uh, stop like giving you the eyes when you bring home new stuff? Do you finally you know, earn the right to to amass a collection without uh, judgment? Well, that's a funny thing. My my wife is the editor, uh, uh, Michelle Carter. She uh, she was at TSR before I got there. Oh wow! Uh, we met at TSR, and uh, uh, she's got all the same hobbies and loves as I do. So half the stuff in the house is hers. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I, I don't have a Holy Grail this week because I'm proud to say that I, I found my Holy Grail from the other week. I'd been working on that, um, the adventure that was uh, non-sequential where it was uh, about time travel and trying to figure out a way to pull that off without making it feel stilted and, and cheap and you know forced for the, from the player's perspective. And uh, at this uh, last Gary Con, I ran a test play of the way I worked it out, and it, it seemed to work perfect. So... Uh, Maybe talk about awesome. that on another episode, but but I'm happy to say mission completed on that. So sweet. All right, now we do have some uh, letters from the homeowners association. We got two of them in, but in the interest of time, uh, unless uh, you really want to be a part of that segment, uh, we could maybe switch things around because I know that uh, things are getting late there for you, and we could maybe catch that just the three of us after we're done talking about tonight's main event. What do you think? That'd be fine with me. I Yeah, I do have to. I get up very early for work, so. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, well, let's launch into it. This old dungeon. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Lou here. In all my excitement of having Mr. Bill Slavisek with us tonight, I kind of forgot to tell you what the Adventure of Scared Stiffs is all about, and I want you all to be able to play along at home, so uh, here's the overview. In Scared Stiffs, uh, your group of Ghostbusters, your franchise, is invited to this convention uh, held by a group called Quacks, the Quasi-Earthly Association of Clairvoyants, Kismetologists, and Spiritualists. Um, this convention is being held in a place called Wraith, Vermont, which, uh, unbeknownst to your characters, is sort of on this bubble uh, where the walls between this world and the next are a bit thin, and it's full of uh, psychokinetic energy, PKE, um, and therefore it has lots of hauntings and spiritual activities and whatnot. So you get to this convention and you find out there's a whole new sheriff in town, this ghost-busting unit that's called the Exterminators, and they're Super high-tech with these ghost-busting guns that actually suck the, the spirits into them. And they wear these, like, battle armor pieces and have these helmets. And uh, they're always handing out little tchotchke items, you know, mugs and keychains and uh, digital uh, um, uh, calendars and that kind of thing. Well, anyhow, as the story goes on, you, you run into a few ghosts in, uh, there in Wraith, Vermont. And uh, you learn that the ghosts are actually afraid, that they're actually being hunted down by this group. And that uh, they're being used, they're being destroyed by them. As the, the plot kind of continues, come to find out that the Exterminators are actually a group of aliens from another planet. These kind of lobster-like creatures called the Crids. And the Crids are using psychokinetic energy to basically create the soft drink that they sell throughout the galaxy. This, you know, they're kind of like these, you know, like a mega corporation of the universe. And uh, the soft drink's primary ingredient is PKE. But the problem is the Crids have used up all the PKE on their planet and the surrounding planets. And so they sent out a search party, and we're lucky to find that Earth is just teeming with this energy. Well, that'd be all fine and dandy, but the PKE isn't just the energy that ghosts run on. But in this module, you find out that it's also the energy that makes humans so creative and full of spirit. And so uh, as the uh, Crids are in town and taking away energies and stuff, we start to see that actual human beings get drained of this energy and become these sort of zombie-like forms that actually are then enslaved by the Crids to help them begin to uh, basically take over the planet and start to strip mine the whole planet from its uh, PKE field. Uh, so as the adventure rolls on, the uh, team eventually finds themselves facing off against the Crids in a giant spaceship that's ha uh, hovering over Vermont. Very Ghostbusters, right? I mean, you've got that final scene where there's the big showdown and all the news crews are there and, oh, here comes the Ghostbusters to save the day. However, the ending kind of kind of sputters a little, in my opinion. Uh, the team gets taken captive. Uh, of course, you know, that's always a, a real hassle in a role-playing game to see that you can actually subdue the characters with off, without uh, killing them off or making them feel like they have no choice in the matter. Um, they get taken aboard the spaceship. And they get made to play one like big arena coliseum game. It's supposed to be kind of like a oh like a game show of sorts. Uh, but what it is is the uh, the Ghostbusters have to face off against the Crids, 
and there's this uh, whole selection of buttons they have to push during this game. They have to defeat the uh, Crids on, on, you know, kind of toe-to-toe battle. Uh, and, you know, if they do, they can then send the PKE energy all back onto the Earth and kind of rejuvenate everybody. Um, yeah, like I said, I think the ending putters a bit. I really feel like they, they, they missed a chance uh, to do a callback uh, to some of the ghosts that they've helped throughout the adventure. You know, maybe allow the players to face off against, uh, you know, something a little more exotic. In fact, one of the themes in the game is that the little tchotchke items that are given out by the X Terminators uh, are actually these little robotic devices that then come to life, uns- you know, in an unsuspecting moment and then help uh, pull the PKE energies out of their owners. So I thought, you know, this would be a kind of a cool thing. Have it be that game show sort of atmosphere that they have going on inside the spaceship. You know, these aliens all talk in kind of commercial lingo and TV lingo. Um, have that moment. Have them uh, have to choose between different showcases, you know, sort of almost parallel to the choice that uh, uh, they have there with Zool, where they have to choose the, the form of the destroyer. And, uh, you know, so they got to choose between these showcases. And they're like, oh, you know, we can win this set of prizes or, you know, this these set of kitchen appliances or these, you know, home computing software and all this. And then have those be tchotchke items just like we're seeing in the adventure and the tchotchke items come to life and start battling them and oh yeah wait a minute halfway through the battle they start to like form together to form this giant you know tchotchke robot that can then uh you know have some extra powers and be a little harder to take down very ghostbusters like in its form you know like you know like the you know face off against the marshmallow man or busting into the uh the museum using the statue of liberty that kind of thing um so anyhow that is Scared stiffs in a nutshell. I'm now going to return you to our program so you can hear what others were thinking about. All right, tonight we're talking about the original Ghostbusters, a frightfully cheerful RPG game, uh, originally written by a team from Chaosium uh, for West End Games back in 1986, uh, which is pretty wild because uh, 1984 is when the movie came out, so it's you know kind of a hot property still. At the point that they uh, they're starting to handle it, um, we've already talked about its die mechanic. It was later used for the Star Wars game with some tweaks, a little bit of change in how the wild die worked. Um, Ars Magica, Storyteller, Shadowrun. Uh, you can kind of see it in Savage Worlds. You can kind of see it in uh, the Free League games that are out right now with the Year Zero engine. Um, it's been cloned with the release of the uh, Spooktacular game. And the awful cheer or awfully cheerful engine, uh, so this this is a great game. It's got some great design uh, bits to it, and uh, particularly at the uh, time that uh, Bill, you were there, um, they released the adventure Scared Stiffs. Uh, now that was in 1987, as I understand. You already told us it was kind of co-written by by George M. Ford, who uh, you know had a uh, background sci-fi. John M. Ford. Yes. Well, I'm sorry. Say that again. Or John, John oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Misspoke there. Yeah, John M. Ford. My bad. Um, so uh, it was the third adventure in the in the publication history, at least as far as uh, history denotes. I don't know if it was the third, you know, in development. Um, and, and as you said, it, it was originally given to you as a manuscript. Now, one of the things I, I'd actually heard that before, but one of the things that was interesting to me is it looked like John's uh, Yellow Clearance Black Box Blues came out before that so I would have thought that he kind of knew oh this is the kind of thing I'm I'm supposed to be writing here 
um, and, and, and the fact that he was no stranger to the gaming industry. Uh, any, any background on how it came to be that it was is written as more of a, a short story when it came to you? Uh, not really. I never got to talk to, uh, to Mr. Ford about it. Uh, uh, he dealt basically with, with uh, Eric and Greg, the, the two heads of the company at the time. Um, I'm not sure how uh, Yellow Clearance Black Box Blues came together. That was a little before my time. Um, but I know Ken Ralston was did the development and editing. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, a lot of what's in there is also uh, is as much Ken as it is John. Ken Ralston was really the uh, the heart of the paranoia line. Uh, he gave it a lot of its humor uh, and was responsible for a lot of that that uh, end of the game. Um, uh, later, Paul Murphy as well, but but Ken uh, certainly at the in the early days. Um, as for you know, like you said, it was originally designed by the Chaosium guys, uh, but I know. I'm not sure what they did, but I understand that Greg Kostiki and Ken Ralston uh, did massive rework to the product uh, oh. before we before we published it. Um, and I'm not sure what that entails. They just I just heard that they did a lot of work to it. Um, and then later, of course, Greg took that basic game mechanic and turned it into the Star Wars game uh, by actually adding a lot of material to it. The Ghostbusters game is pretty bare bones, but it was done that way on purpose. Yeah, and, and that's unusual for the time it came out. I mean, it, it really stood out as, as you know, minimalist uh, sort of art, you know. And, and that's that's the interesting thing, and that might be the work they did on it, because uh, I'll tell you, simple design is harder than complex <laughs> design. Uh, it's always harder to make a simple game than it is to make uh, a game that has 100 fiddly bits. Sure. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to revisit it or how fresh it is in your memory, but one of the things we like to do on this old dungeon is kind of banter about, like, what does it have in it? What does this adventure Scared Stiffs have in it that is just quintessential, that is just like, wow, that's a really, you know, unique piece that when people play the game, they always remember, they always have a good time at. And then also, like, what's in it that might need to be shifted or changed, or what would you do different running it for your table if you're doing it, you know, nowadays? And I think all of us are, are kind of scared about going first since it's a property that you actually developed. Uh, uh, so do you mind starting? <laughs> sure. I mean, I'd love to hear what you guys think because, uh, you know, some things hold up well, some things don't. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of the humor in Scared Stiffs was great at the time and is kind of dated now. Um, but we weren't writing it to last 30 years at the time. Um uh, I'd also get rid of the aliens if I could. We did way too many aliens for Ghostbusters in the early products. Mm -hmm. um, but that was also part of John's original story, and I had to keep some of it. <laughs> um, so I was uh, – I want uh, I to – I hate to, you know, go against the grain here, but I really enjoyed the humor in here, um, and – I think what I really loved was the um, that the humor was 
everywhere and it was like there was direct conversation to the ghost master right the author is talking directly to the ghost master and there's humor there and then the story itself has some humor and it really i was talking uh we were talking about designing some games um the other day at uh, frog god and we were we were thinking about doing sort of a line of games that is I don't know, sort of more serious, a little deeper that, you know, explores some, some serious themes. And this was exactly the opposite in a big, deep, strong way. And I, <laughs> I love the just complete total commitment to, um, to sort of the cultural jokes. And I, I will admit that, you know, some of those obviously don't, don't hold up just because people don't get the references necessarily, right. but the existence of them and the, just all the little Easter eggs in there, all the little bits of humor um, I, I really enjoyed that it was like 120%. This is what we're doing, and and that that cracked me up. It made it a fun read. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you know, I was just looking at you know if I were to do it again, I would try not to lean so heavily into pop culture so that it would be a little less so, yeah dated. Um, I wouldn't have done the stereotypes that I used for some of the ghosts. Um, I don't write that way anymore, uh, and I don't remember writing that way then, but I obviously did. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, humor is hard, but uh, mm. but we try to we tried to be very cognizant of the properties we were we were dealing with. So Ghostbusters, you know, we watched the movie a lot, and I got into that that mindset and tried to get into that humor. Um, and, and the same with Star Wars, you know, we tried to put ourselves into that universe when we started to do the writing and, uh, um, you know, but otherwise, I mean, I read the back cover copy again and, and I love the setup. I think it was, you know, it still holds <laughs> up to me. Uh, you know, Lewis Tully is the guest of honor and, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I was very happy looking back at it at a lot of the. Uh, the handouts that we did in there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I gotta say, you, you can tell somebody that actually has been to a convention wrote those little scenarios of the people you meet and what's going on and and what's included in the uh, the little uh, uh, you know grab bag there. Uh, I, I was really <laughs> pleased with that. I thought you know that gives you so much to work with as far as setting that tone up for when the characters arrive. Yeah, and I had been to, uh, uh, I think I had done my first Gen Con right before I wrote this. Um, uh, I had done uh, Origins down in when Origins was in Baltimore. We used to go to that. Um, and I did a lot of Star Trek and comic book conventions. So I had that to draw upon. You had mentioned uh, maybe taking the aliens out of it. Um, would you then make it the, like some sort of, group of occultists that are there at the convention that are trying to steal the PKE or, or what did you have in mind maybe as a shift from the aliens? You know, I'm not sure. Maybe that way or I, I think in looking back maybe this isn't the adventure we took them out of but maybe we didn't do the the other two that had aliens in them, right? We just, mm-hmm. we just, hit, we just did too many uh, we didn't do enough ghosts in the beginning. Um <laughs> So I'd certainly, uh, I'd certainly at least look at that. But I think this works very well. And if it had been the only one we did, 
it would have been fine. Uh, but Hot Rods of the Gods was also our first one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, just too many aliens. We had another one that I was working on after this called uh, They Saved Queen Victoria's Brain. Uh, <laughs> I love that title. <laughs> but when uh, Curtis Smith ran into trouble on the Star Wars source book and needed uh, me to come on to help him write it uh, and basically take over the whole book, uh, something had to go by the wayside. So uh, so that one never came out. Hmm. Um, I, I just want to jump jump in real, real quick here. It, uh, I do think the fact that it has – um, a lot of cultural references from that era is, a gr- is honestly a great thing. So, I mean, obviously, in, in things we wrote 30 years ago, you know, a lot of them don't hold up in 2021, or we we would prefer maybe it never show up in 2021. <laughs> but I think in this particular instance, there. I mean, I, I don't know. I thought it was fantastic it, to go back and read that. Um, and the whole convention atmosphere is great too. I mean, that's something. So many people who play these games can identify with. I think you did a great job of of building that in and making that connection to to the players and the and the game master. Well, that's great to hear. You know, I I, I look back and I, based on what I thought you guys wanted to do and all that, I, I was trying to be critical. Uh, uh, and there are th- <laughs> and, and and I am everything I've said is 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 true. But I'm glad to hear that that you guys think it. Holds up better than that. <laughs> what uh, yeah, I feel like it would be hard to do um, Ghostbusters without pop culture. Like one of the things that I think of when I think of Ghostbusters is sort of pop culture references, and, and that's baked into the. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, the, the property the, is all about. Yeah, you know, you know. Do you do you, you know? Tell them about the size of that Twinkie. You know that. You know, definitely. I mean. Uh, do you think maybe like like one of the things I was thinking is you know if I'm gonna run this maybe maybe replace some of the uh, ad lingo that that the aliens speak in and that the zombies speak in with like I don't know internet memes or something you're just kind of freshen it up bring it into something that's more relevant to the newer players I, I don't know oh yeah that's a good idea that that's clever uh, or they talk in in emojis uh... <laughs> <laughs> Eggplant, you'd what? To, you'd have to have a lot of props made for that, but uh, that, yeah. that would be pretty cool. Um, one of the things—that's that's, that's pretty clever. The aliens are are the emojis in your computer. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> one of the areas that when I got to it in the module, I'm like, man, I don't know that I could do that. Is when the Ghostbusters actually show up, like like the film Ghostbusters show up. And I always hate those cameos of important people in games. Um, was I mean, it, it may just be me. What do you guys think on that? Yeah, I mean, so it's 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 running into to Gandalf or Doctor Who or mm-hmm. right, any of those sort of any of the the big names. And I feel like a lot of the licensed properties. Uh, move the story well away from those characters so that we don't compete with the player characters. Um, but I don't know. That's, it's a tough one here. Cause yeah, it is, it is hard to have um, NPCs who are sort of running the story, I guess. Well, and I mean, know, it's, or, it's or written well in that names. like the main Ghostbusters aren't there to save the day and they're not like, 
they're written in a way that you're not probably going to have any like, oh, you know, I'm going to, you know, go up and punch Egon or anything like that from the players. It's not, you know, there's not the kind of interactions right. that would happen. And they disappear. Like and then they disappear, yeah. Uh, but I just, as a game master, it's like, oh, man, I've got to somehow try to impersonate the personalities of these three famous characters that everybody knows. <laughs> you know, Lewis totally, I mean, that's kind of fun. I mean, you can maybe handle one. You can kind of watch the show a bit, get kind of his personality down pat. Uh, but then you're handling hand the other three for a little bit there. That, oh, man, it, it gives me stage yeah. fright as a GM. Yeah, but <laughs> that's, that's in this instance, that's kind of the way to do it, right? As, as opposed to what we talked about earlier with, you know, the Indiana Marvels, or not Marvels, TSR's Indiana Jones role-playing game, where basically you had to play the main characters in Indiana Jones. Like, one player gets to be Indy. Well, everybody wants to be Indy, right? Yeah. So it creates yeah. a complete breakdown of the game. Versus in this situation where you just kind of have this, this uh, you know, uh, spotlight moment, little interjection, yeah. right? That kind of that, that keeps that uh, flavor of the adventure and the flavor of the the IP rolling through rolling through it, so it doesn't get it doesn't get lost in translation. So you still feel like you're playing Ghostbusters because hey, there they are. And I understand what Lou's saying too. It's difficult to GM to pull that off. And you know what? But I think everyone around the table understands it. You know, you're you one one guy sitting behind a screen can't take the place of four highly paid actors. It's just <laughs> that's just not going to happen. Well, and one of the nice things I think with something like that is that because in general people do know them fairly well, you don't have to play them. I mean, you know, we sort of it's like saying you know like you don't yeah, have to exactly, play the dragon. Exactly. Like we, when a dragon yeah. shows up, we sort of understand that. And I feel like this, in some ways, is similar. You know, like, we all have our pictures in our heads, and we're not going to rely on the GM to uh, to make that picture for us. You don't yeah, do I your dragon voice? Point, that, that little, that little... Well, you know, of course I do my dragon voice, but, uh, I, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's kind of my point, and you made it better than me, Edwin, is that that little interjection, dropping that into the game, um, people are going to, you know, it's going to evoke Ghostbusters, Instead of trying to play Ghost, the Ghostbusters, right? So, I, I right, think that was right. that was a great little insert in that adventure. And, and you know, on the other hand, if you are uncomfortable with that, uh, the great thing about RPGs is the game master can can change whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you'd mentioned the. Uh, so, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that one of the things that I think I would struggle with. Um, and it's interesting. I didn't realize that this had been a story, uh, but I, I definitely felt like reading it. It felt like a story um, in that there's obviously like it, it was a weird, it was a weird mix. I think this must've been in some sense, uh, Bill, you fighting uh, not, not violently, but fighting sort of with, with the, uh, the manuscript you got. Cause there's a lot of, you know, there is obviously, here are a bunch of scenes that we're going to see play out. Like it was very much a, a sort of a scenic adventure of you're going to look at this and you're going to look at that and you're going to look at this other thing. And then at the same time, I could feel this other voice saying, uh, I want to, we want to give you choices. We want to give the players choices. Like you can handle it this way. You can handle it that way. And to me, knowing that it started out as a as a short story that you were trying to convert into an adventure, um, I guess I, I now have a much greater sympathy for that tension that I was feeling as I was reading it. But I think I would really struggle to uh, 
push my players this hard to stay on track uh, to see all the cool things there are to see in this adventure. And I suspect that we would not, you know, I suspect we'd end up playing a different adventure. Like we'd start with this adventure and we would have this mystery and this storyline because it was a really complicated plot too uh, for a, you know, for a short module. Uh, but I suspect that they would get to the end uh, in some completely other way than, than the sort of programmed into here. And, and you want them to, right? That's that's the point of group storytelling, that the, the players are going to add their uh, their choices and their perspective into it and make it hopefully surprise you and make it totally different. And that's great. Right. Uh, yeah. And I uh, felt and I, yeah, and this one, I, I, it seemed like this one would be a hard like, you know, they get captured like there's a there's a, a few things in here which are sort of I feel like we would not typically do today in terms of game, you know, adventure design. writing in terms of like oh, design. Yeah. yeah, like this is. I, I would say that's true. And this is my first mm -hmm. uh, actual adventure that I wrote from from scratch. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, based on John's story, obviously, but but this is the first one that I'm doing as a professional for publication. Uh, I'm trying to get the style of West End, which like. Like I said earlier, is uh, make it readable, not just playable. Um, mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, we knew that we had a lot of customers who didn't have groups. That was just the reality mm -hmm. in 1986, 87. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. And and people bought these things and just had themselves to to to, to, to utilize them with. So making them fun to read was was part of our our goal as well. Uh, yeah, I definitely had. I mean, this I, my my note to myself was uh, fun to read. Three exclamation points! Like in all the adventures <laughs> I've read in the last year, um, in terms of just enjoying it as something to read, this is definitely I don't know number one or probably probably number one but certainly in the top few of, of things that i've just read and enjoyed reading without thinking about the gaming part necessarily um, i think the next yeah. thing you'll see from me as an adventure is rebel breakout in the back of the d6 star wars book um and that i think does a better job of telling a story but also being uh, uh playable mm-hmm mm -hmm. Played that cool. one. <laughs> uh, one of the things we, we talked about it a little bit. Um, so the, w w an iconic scene in this for me is when they go to the uh, the old grandpa and he's like possessed by six different ghosts. And there's that you know that kind of avant garde experimental theater thing that Weston Games did so much of back then, where it's like, okay, you know what we're gonna do here? We're gonna pass these ghost personalities out to the players, and now you're playing the ghosts that are coming out of this body. And I know we talked about some of some of what they say and some of their, you know, the oh, uh, stereotypes or whatever. You know, that, that's not a thing we do anymore. And, and, you know, for you know a lot of reasons. We're just a more educated culture now than what we were back then. Uh, yep. But uh, I, I think that has to stay in there. I think that's an awesome moment. And, in fact, if it were me, if I were, you know, dolling this up for, the, for a, a group, you know, I'm playing with now – I gotta do a callback to the commando ghosts. I gotta, I gotta have these six ghosts, maybe even played by the players, become part of the end scene, become part of the action at the end of the story that, that helps resolve things. Because I just think that's a cool idea. This, you know, ragtag group of uh, spectral beings here. 
That's a cool idea. It was fun. Yeah, I'm uh, listening to you guys. I'm glad it sounds like it holds up better than I originally thought. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I know we're we're going over on time a little bit, but I I do have to ask one question. Um, One of the things that, as as a younger player, always kind of turned me off from initially getting involved with the Ghostbusters game is I really didn't feel like the art on the covers was up to par with with what the industry was doing back then. In fact, if you look at the the book, I, I think most people would argue that the interior art is better than the cover art. Um, did any any ideas on that or any any response to that? Uh, all I can tell you is the time uh, art is expensive. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, West End didn't have a ton of great artists yet. Um, uh, probably the best known prior to this is uh, Jim Holloway, who was doing the paranoia art. Mm-hmm. Um, and even his stuff is a little rough. I mean, it's it's great and it fits the mood. Uh, but we're not talking about the stable of artists that TSR had uh, uh or anything close to that. Um, you know, no Jeff Easley, no uh, Larry Elmore. Uh, it wasn't until Star Wars where, well, A, we got to use stuff from Lucasfilm mm-hmm. that that was, you know. And you guys got some of the, like, the old Dark Horse stuff too, didn't you, for that system? Uh, that was later because Dark later. Horse actually came out after us. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the first, actually, the first licensed product after us was uh, Dark Empire, uh, the Dark Horse comic uh, that told the story of after Return of the Jedi, um, and that was uh, in '91, I believe, or early '91. Um, but but yeah, we did we did some of their we used some of their art later. Um, uh, but with Torg and with uh, the later Star Wars products, uh, we had some more money to play with. The budgets were a little better, and the art gets better. Sure. Well, uh, kind of hit the time that we, we need to let you go here. I know uh, any final thoughts, uh, anyone, uh, about uh, things you would change uh, or any way you would use this module differently or, or use it for a different system in a different way? Just kind of closing thoughts on it. No, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I think if what's what's really hard to do is anything that's even remotely humorous, and that's obviously what Ghostbusters intended to be. You know, funny RPGs or something that had the you know that, those comedy elements are really difficult. So, you know, where this module would fit in would be games that are designed that way, which would be I mean the only two that I can really think of are Paranoia and the uh, uh, Chill First Edition. Um, I think would fit in either of those game systems. You could you could make this module work with just a, you know not a ton of modification. Um, obviously the rule system got to be got to be converted, but I think the story and and the pacing and the the the, uh, the evocance of the whole adventure would work well with either of those game systems. I think you could absolutely use it for those. Um, anything else that you know. It, 
it would probably take significant alteration, which I think would take away from what it is. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't do that. I, I will say I'll agree. Humor is hard, not only to write, but to play. Um, we never meant for either Ghostbusters or Paranoia to be played uh, as campaigns. They were kind of things that we imagined you did as one shots or short uh, two, three sessions, and then you went back to your real game. Um, uh, just because you can't really sustain that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, even with a group of players who are funny and making jokes all the time, uh, that's not necessarily the same thing. Uh, 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 so, I, I, yeah. I would agree with you 100%. I mean, we tried back in the day playing games like Tune, and, you know, even even playing it for more than a couple hours got I hate to use the word tiresome. Yep. But it's pretty much where it got because you know, it's forced at a certain point, right? Yeah. Where well, we're not creativity not takes so much out. out of you, yeah, it just kinda of drains you of all that uh, so yeah. quickly, yeah. Yeah. I was kinda of thinking the opposite. I was kinda of thinking about well what if you know, what if I wanted to play uh Call of Cthulhu and do a similar setup? Now you know, it obviously all the humor would have to be dumped. Well, not all of it, but some, you know, good portion of it. But just the the setup that oh, you're going to this psychic uh, seminar or whatever, and you know, there's something there. Maybe you know, maybe not aliens. Maybe it's one of the elder gods that's drawn these people there to try to feed off of some sort of psychic energies that they produce as a mass or whatever. Uh, and everybody goes mad at the end. It would work. Great. How did you know that? Who told you? You see my show notes. <laughs> Well, I think, uh, uh, I mean, humor and horror go super well together. You know, <laughs> as long as you're butter. balancing back and forth. Huh? I said chocolate and peanut butter. Exactly, exactly. I mean, just because I think they're both, uh, they're both often, well, you get that nervous energy, and then you let off a little bit with, you know, a joke, and then you go back into the horror. I mean, I feel like our my Call of Cthulhu games tend to have a lot more humor in them than my sort of fantasy games and i think it's because we are uh sort of pushing off a little bit uh, of the of the horror stuff and so i think i think you could actually make that work nicely with even including some of the uh written comedy as opposed to simply just the comedy that comes from the from the players um you know it's having having some of that mixed in with there because it gives you that roller coaster ride which i think is really what makes you know a fun horror game is that you want to well, it depends what kind of horror game you're going for. But, you know, one of the ways you can do it, which is really fun, is to go up and down. And so you're suddenly going from, you know, light humor to dark humor to just dark and then back and forth. A good mo- a good model for that is uh, American Werewolf in London. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm. 100%. So I, I do think the humor element, though, works better in contemporary games, right? Games that use a more – are the the – familiar setting campaign if you will are more contemporary to what we can um as players and game masters relate to uh you know it's harder to do it in fantasy because we just can't you know yeah i hate to say that but elves and dragons don't exist so we can't relate to that kind of thing as much so that doesn't mean it's not we can't have humor right in those games we do we we always do we we have my game group in particular kind of has fun with everything, but I think it's easier, like you said, to inject that into a contemporary game 
or a game that's played in contemporary time. And by contemporary, yeah, I mean after 1900. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, uh, thank you so much uh, for being on tonight and uh, sharing your time with us. Um, is there anything, uh, you know, as, as we close uh, the show out on this portion, is there anything uh, the listeners can look forward to uh, that you're producing right now that, uh, you know, will be coming out soon or is already out? I know you got memoirs out. Uh, what can you tell us? What, what should we be looking for? Uh, yeah, if you are interested in uh, in how we did the Star Wars stuff, um, uh, that book's available uh, on Drive Through RPG um, as a, a as a download or as a print on demand, or you can go to Amazon.com and get the the, the download there. Uh, don't buy the print on demand from Amazon because the price is way out of line. Uh, get it from Drive Through RPG. Um, Otherwise, the uh, next thing for Elder Scrolls Online is the Deadlands. Uh, it's our next DLC. Uh, it's about one of our Daedric princes, uh, Mehrunes Dagon, big demon guy. Uh, so a lot of planar adventure in that one, and that'll come out uh, next month. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we uh, hope, uh, you know, if... Uh... You get the urge ever to rejoin us and talk about anything at all. Uh, we're always welcome back. And again, I, you know, this is just, uh, you know, one of the going to be one of the highlights of our show. I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I, hey, you're welcome, and I, you know, I appreciate the offer, and I'm glad I was able to be at least, hopefully, somewhat interesting. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> that was there really at all. nice to meet you. Yeah, it was yeah. great speaking with you, Bill. Uh, yeah, you guys too. And uh, you're, I mean, and, and I don't know if we've said this enough, but. Uh, you're a legend, so sure. uh, just I'm going to leave you with that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, let's uh, let's listen to our uh, listeners here for a minute. Let's go to our uh, letters from the Homeowners Association. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from. My opinion is letter writer is a total wacko. All right. We got two letters in the hopper this week. This first one is from Frank Larson. And uh, Edwin, I feel like he's almost talking directly to you. Uh, he says, what's <laughs> up? What's up, contractors of the Dwarven Deeps? That's a new one. I like that. Contractors of the yeah. Dwarven Deeps. Uh, your new host has been talking about running improv games and has almost got me up for taking that brave step. I'm running a COC game called Cthulhu, I assume, right now. Uh, but I've heard many folks talk about how dropping some interesting clues in front of players often leads to them generating their own conclusions of what they mean and how they fit to the plot. Sounds crazy, but this is stuff I heard from several GMs across Twitch and some podcasts. Do you, or I'm sorry, so what do you guys or gals think? Can Call of Cthulhu be done with minimal prep and in an impromptu setup? My thoughts are with a couple maps, a main monster, and some random but interesting clues it might be. Would you all have the guts to do this? Thanks for the episode on The Haunting, by the way. I disagree with your conclusions, but can see your points. <laughs> Frank Larson. All right, what do you guys think? Call it Cthulhu uh, Improv. Think... So, I think absolutely, uh, but I'm going to put a, a butt on it. <laughs> uh, so, I think making a, making a horror adventure, and especially you know something that's not too, too long... Uh, I think you could do with well maybe the even a longer one. I think you could do that improv without without much trouble and pretty much the way uh, Frank the way you describe it there, right? You need some monsters, you need some clues, and then you let the uh, 
the players interpret the clues and they're going to go somewhere and wherever they go, you put some horror there and, you know, you just keep escalating. I think that's, that seems totally, totally doable and super fun and not horribly, horribly, horribly difficult. Um, and then the butt part is that I think of Call of Cthulhu as more of an investigative game than a horror game, um, meaning that for me, the game is more about figuring out some mystery. And I think the, I think that improving a mystery is harder. Um, I'm sure there are people who can do it and people who can do it really well, but I feel like if you want, especially if you want some, you know, fun twist or you want some red herrings, you want some clues that, that push people one way and then they have to reinterpret them to get the actual answer. Um, to me, that would, like, I can imagine trying to do that and I could imagine my brain by the end of like a four hour game of doing that would just be complete mush. It would be fun, it'd be exciting. But boy, would that tax my brain. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, throw out to Frank was the uh, a game called Tremulous, which is a PBTA game that is designed around the idea of doing improv horror. Um, and again, it's not necessarily designed around a complicated mystery, but it's definitely designed around getting feedback from the table and taking it and amping it up and twisting it just enough so that they're still surprised. They still get some, some horror out of it. Um, and I also might be tempted if I were, I mean, I, for me, I played enough Call of Cthulhu. That it's a pretty, it, it's a simple game in the sense that I ignore the complicated rules and the rules I use are, are simple, you know, roll percentile, roll low, tell me how you do. Um, you know, and I ignore most of the chase rules and um, machine gun rules and all the other stuff, which is are good rules. I just we just tend to ignore them. Um, but I feel like there's also a lot of, you know, Cthulhu. There's a lot of simple games, Cthulhu Dark, Cthulhu Hack, um, that also might make it easier because it would allow you to to keep your brain focused on the story. So sort of, I think of like Tremulous. I think of a sort of uh, improv with training wheels. Um, not in a bad way, but like it, it gives you some support, but it's a simple enough system that you don't have to think about two things at once. And so I feel like if you're really focusing on your improv muscle, you want to not have to think about the game mechanics at all. For sure, yeah. Um, so I, so that's I, that's my thought on it. Bill? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Edwin's much more concise thoughts than I probably have on this a step further with it. I think improving Call of Cthulhu is almost a mistake. Um, Call of Cthulhu to me is a game of complex adventure, and I'm not—I don't mean that by rules. I just mean that there's a certain complexity and mystery that has to go into a, a good Call of Cthulhu adventure. You're talking like the who's kind of, and, you're talking like the who's and whys and hows. Exactly, it kind of has to build as you play. It is really hard to improv. Um, I'm not saying people can't do it. There's plenty of people who are way better than I am at, at improving. Um, I would just see, I would just putting my game master hat on here, looking from afar. That Call of Cthulhu would be one of the last systems I would pick to do that. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, picking out other maybe old school games like Top Secret would be another one. You just, there's no way you could just do it. Just 
just pick up and play. I mean, you could. You could do it with any game, obviously. But I think what, like Edwin was saying, you would just, as a game master, drive yourself nuts because as you're, you're moving through the adventure, your head is going to go in a hundred different directions that you're going to try and um, decide whether that's a good direction that you should even give the players an opportunity to go down or not before you get into some rabbit hole of a mistake. Um, so I, I'd be, I'm not saying you can't do it with Call of Cthulhu. I just think it's, it's one of the game systems that I would try to avoid it, and I would definitely have at least some sort of flow chart written out of where I want to go with it. Um, one, so I can always one way I steer imagine, back into um, it if I had to. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. One way I could imagine doing it a little bit more easily is, so most of my online gaming has been two-hour chunks, not all of it. but And I could imagine if I were running a game two hours every week or something like that, I think given a week between two-hour sessions, I could steer back into it and sure. create something. So it wouldn't be improv at the table, but it would still be reactive, right? It'd still be like the players did some stuff. They went down an avenue. I made up some stuff on the fly, and now I have a week to process that stuff I made up and try to turn it into this complicated <laughs> story that I think you're right. People do expect from Call of Cthulhu. Like they expect some multiple multiple layers and uh, interacting uh, cults or whatever. And, you know, there should, there, it, it's not the, the, I won't say it's the game system, but it's our expectation of the genre that we are looking for in general when we play with that system. I definitely think there's kind of two camps and, and, and the bigger camp for, for sure is the, you know, investigation detective, like the, you know, you're going to go insane. You know, it's, you know, how it's going to end, but the fun part of playing That's for that so camp. <laughs> <laughs> Agree to disagree, <laughs> but uh, no. The uh, but the the thing that camp really likes is, is that you know putting the pieces together and ah, this is who's doing it and this is how they did it and this is why they did it and uh, but then there is a smaller camp I think out there. At least I've encountered it at, at conventions that Call of Cthulhu to them is uh, almost like a game of uh, I don't want to say like body horror, but like a game where you come across horrific scenes and deal with things exactly. that are just shocking. You could and, improv the snot out of that. Yeah, lean into For that. Sure. And yeah, it's, I, I think you can too. But yeah, I think, and, and, I think, yeah body horror, um, survival sure. horror. Like I think improving mm -hmm. a survival horror game, that's easy, right? You just put them somewhere and keep throwing stuff at them until they're all dead. You know, and it, and it can be an interesting and fun game. You want to be creative about what the, you know, some surprise challenges. But I think there's lots of horror games that you could use the Call of Cthulhu system for that you could improv. I don't disagree there. I was just, you know, I'm talking. But I'm 100% well, with you, Bill, that I, yeah, I'm 100% yeah. with you. I would not, I personally would not want to try and do a, a Masks of Narlethita. Like, I wouldn't want to try and do what I think of as a classic uh, style of Call of Cthulhu game uh improv i want to think that thing out and map it out and draw my yeah. 17 flow diagrams and the inter <laughs> i mean that's what's cool about that game for me most of the time i'm 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 right there with you you know i for me i, I in this I, I break this goes into creeps into a lot of my role playing would be i kind of like the move the whole the goalposts are always moving kind of thing anyway and then there's mm -hmm. always moving parts beyond what the pcs are doing so there's always something that, you know, yep. everyone's not waiting around for the PCs to act. There, there are things in motion that can weave in and out of that adventure storyline or that adventure four-hour slot. Um, 
and I think Call of Cthulhu is one of those fantastic games that allows you to do that as a game master. And I think by improving it, I, all I would be doing is limiting myself significantly because I would start to kind of railroad that game um, to make mm-hmm. sure that it, something's actually going to work at the end of at the end of the night versus I've just gone off the rails somewhere. Um, again, I don't I don't think yeah, you can't do it. I think there's a couple uh... scenario ideas that would lend itself to that, but I I yeah. don't. I, Overall, over on the big, big generally speaking, I, I, I think I would try to avoid it with Call of Cthulhu, but that's again, that that's just in, you know, that's my two cents. Have you guys ever played the game uh, Inspectors uh, with like the word Specter in it? No, no, that's so. no. that's something I might recommend to to Frank. Um, so it's it's a little more comedic, or at least that's it's the intent of it, but. Uh, it does have it's. It's one of these story games where, you know, the the game master has sort of a setting they present, and a little bit of a you know some these are the characters and this is something that had happened, uh, but then the resolution of it all kind of comes from the player's side. You know, they start to say, well, I think you know so and so is actually causing this to happen so that they can benefit their company in this way or whatever. It, it, it deals with investigating is actually a lot like ghostbusters it deals with investigating the paranormal uh, paranorma no one more time it deals with investigating the paranormal and um you know it has you know maybe a little more modern uh, ghost hunters you know that kind of those kind of tv shows that kind of a feel to it but uh that might be something where you would you, you know you could cut your teeth and see how well that goes and then you could maybe better imagine how that's going to be in a call of Cthulhu game but uh I'm with you guys. I think yeah, it's it's you're not going to hit what people are wanting to get out of that game, trying to improv it the way you're talking. But go for it, Frank. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I it, I agree. I mean, I if that's if that's what he wants to try, he should absolutely try it. Yeah. What's the worst yes. that could happen? And then write us Everybody back so we can same. tell other people about it. <laughs> yep. And you can write yeah, us, record it. Let us know. Yeah. And you can write us back at uh, thisolddungeon at gmail.com. That's T-H-I-S-O-L-D-U-N-G-E-O-N at gmail.com. All right, we got one more letter in the hopper here. Uh, It says here, Well, fellas, I hate to throw it in your face, especially since Thomas and Briggy are away. That's the the former co-host. Hopefully they'll be back soon. Thomas is getting better for those of you that are wondering. Um, Should be back, I think. Uh, maybe within a month or two, we'll see. Um, anyhow, uh, but you guys talked about doing the Forest Oracle, which is a D&D module, uh, or a D&D module, a few episodes back. Have you chickened out? To put it in your terms, if a house doesn't have a good foundation, there's no reason to repair it. Best to level it. That's how it goes with Forest Oracle. I mean, no disrespect to Carl Smith, uh, is that a real name? This is a question yes. mark here. <laughs> it is? All right. I didn't know if that, that could have been a pseudonym as far as I knew. I don't know. Um, but nothing in it makes sense or seems to have a logical conclusion. Prove me wrong. I effing dare you. <laughs> no, really. I'm pretty much waiting for that episode. Till then, enjoying the last ones. Even the Halloween chit-chat. Oh, memory lane. Monster Master Matt. <laughs> All right. You guys ever play that game or read it? Forest Oracle? I think it's N2 yes. or something nope. like that. Or... Oh, you have? You, have you played it or just read it? Oh. <laughs> what did you think? Because 
because I've only read it and I've heard so many people dog it. Uh, you know, Monster Matt's not the only one that seems to have a vendetta for it. What do you so think? So did you did you throw the idea out there that you're gonna review it or something like that? that uh, you to... I'm trying to think. A few episodes back, uh, I can't remember if we brought it up or if it was in a, a letter that somebody said, you know, if you're looking for ones to to take a swing at redoing, that that would be one that would give us a challenge. Uh, it would give you a massive challenge. It is hot garbage. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> it is. Uh... That's you talking it up, huh? Uh, yeah. It is probably the top three worst modules TSR ever produced. Oh, wow. And I'm having a hard time thinking of the two that would be worse to, to give it number three status. <laughs> it it really is a mess. It train wreck is an understatement. I'm not sure what they were thinking with that module at all. Yeah, just I, I it's been a so, while since I read it, but like I remember there being a a cabin by a lake, and uh, there's like this it, enchantment on it, everything, but there's no way to know that there is, and you got to do all this bad. stuff, and there's no way to know no. that you got to do all this stuff to you know no. advance the plot. It, 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 it doesn't work. It's a module that just does not work from from start to finish, and you know I I'm one of those people who really really rarely likes will knock other people's work because I'm sure people have knocked mine, but. Uh, it really is that bad, and and I can say that because this came out of a company like TSR. This didn't come out of Judges Guild, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, which it sure sounds like it, it looks like it did. These are um, highly paid professionals that decided to press the go button on this. Yeah. Just don't, just don't know what happened there. Just don't know what happened. I mean, you just had you know the slabs like talk about you know I six Ravenloft, which is one of the you know. As far as I'm concerned, I, I agree with them a lot. As far as story-driven adventure modules, it was, you know, it uh, it, it kind of set a whole new bar and standard at the time. And then you have things like the Forest Oracle, which just, <laughs> it's not even, I, I could not, I, I can't understand why the players would actually want to play it if they knew what it was all about. It's really not compelling on top of everything else. It's just bad all the way around. I can't remember. Is it one where you you start the game under a and I there's always debate of how you say this, but the a Gia spell or Gia spell where you have it's something to do... like that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, when people trash, uh, what is it? Uh, B nine Castle Caldwell or maybe B eight? I forget which one it is. I think it's B nine. They trash a lot too, but that. The, I've played that. It's not but, bad. I mean, it's 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 episodic. It's not really meant to be a full adventure, but like little mini adventures. It is. It's you sit around, you break out the beer and pretzels, yeah. and you roll some dice and kill some monsters. It's perfectly fine for what it is. It's perfectly mm -hmm. fine. It doesn't try to do something, right? It's not telling you something it isn't. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and just completely bag on everything in the forest oracle. There's there's some cool parts to it, but is it worth putting trying to 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 put that module together in a format that you want to play, uh, no, I, I don't. I, you're, you're, there's way too much out there to, to grab. To waste your time. Yeah. Yes, to spend time on 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 that adventure. Yeah, hundred percent. So I would say, no, don't touch it with a ten foot pole. <laughs> Edwin, uh, any experiences or any ever hear anything about it? I got nothing. Nothing. All right. It's also got a lot of editing problems, if I remember correctly. Oh, that would that would make me grumpy. <laughs> yeah, it will. 
Yeah. <laughs> I better stay away from that one. Just to, it sounds like it's not not even worth spending time with. It's it really is it, and I I I can find something redeeming more than redeeming. I'm kind of a TSR module connoisseur, and I like a ton of them. And uh, just this one's just one of them that you just almost want to forget. Hmm. <laughs> All right, Monster Master Matt, uh, you heard it there. Uh, maybe it's not worth the time to reconstruct it or work it through on the program. Um, definitely going to slide that one onto the, the far back burner. <laughs> Uh, just because, you know, if we're going to tell you, you know, 20 things to replace the 20 things that are there, then it's not really the, the program, right? We're not really keeping the original module. So uh, maybe we'll come around to it. I hope you keep listening, uh, but uh, no promises. It sounds like it's it's maybe not good fanfare for this. I, I think Matt nailed it. I think he absolutely did. <laughs> it was a good email to send. <laughs> All right, you guys got any last thoughts before we close out the episode? I do not. That was a that was a fun episode. Nope. It was great being able to that talk to. It was super fun, yeah. It yeah. was when when I said that you know Bill Slavic's a legend. I mean, he really is. And I I haven't played a lot of the stuff that he was involved in here and there. Um, but just to have his name on so much material is incredible, incredible. And, you know, the one yeah. thing we didn't, I don't know, if, I, I had to walk away from it. Did we tie in the fact that, so the original Ghostbusters RPG, when that came out, that was a D6 system, and that's they they pulled that core rule set into, I believe, unless I'm, my memory's fading here, into D6 Star Wars. Yeah, he talked a little bit about that and Did said it? that okay. they, they kind of yeah. added on to it to make it a little more complex, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot more complex because yeah. the Ghostbusters rule, yeah. rule set is, is very, is minimalist is an understatement right so sure. but uh but yeah I, th- I, th- I thought that was absolutely super cool yeah i i really uh you know i played a lot of D, and then the next thing i really cut my teeth on was star wars d6 and, and mostly material and adventures that uh mr slavisek had written and uh yeah. I, I told him in an email that uh it's been really super influential in how i write games because it he was really a master in a lot of the guys writing for Wedge were masters of this uh, getting a story down that was a playable story that wasn't a railroad, wasn't like you have to go from here to there, but yet could kind of connect and make a, a cinematic feel for the adventure for the players. Oh, it, yeah it, you know, their, their adventure design in, in Star Wars D6 is fantastic I mean, Western Games did a tremendous job with that um, they really did. Edwin, any last thoughts? I think I'm good. This was uh, this was super. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for spending your time with us tonight. And again, I want to give a thanks out to Bill Slavisek for coming on and hanging with us tonight. And uh, Edwin and, and Bill Barsh, I, I really appreciate you guys uh, joining me here. Uh, it's been an awesome time hanging with you all, and I hope uh, – you know, if uh, your calendars are open up, that you give me a, a you know a shout, and we, we can talk more adventures another night. Uh, I'm I'm always in for it. Sounds good. Great. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Good night and good gaming, folks.
Tonight's episode of This Old Dungeon is copyright 2021. We'd like to thank our special guests and remind you, the listener, that the views expressed and the opinions held are simply our own. Hey, we're here to entertain, not educate. Until next time, happy gaming.